When I was a kid growing up, we played this game. Uh, maybe, maybe you played it too. Uh, it was called Mercy. Did everyone play Mercy? You understand how Mercy is played? Uh, it's, it's basically inflict pain on, on someone you really like, usually. It's, it's like, and who can withstand the pain the most? And there was something about it, uh, maybe it's the thought of losing, or simply the subconscious idea that we don't actually want to actually ask for mercy. But you would wrench on someone's hands until the point that they couldn't take it anymore, and they would cry out, mercy. Uh, and then, you know, you re literally had a, a sore loser. I mean, that was the point of the game, and it was all very fun. Um, and so my point in telling you this tonight is even without the game, it seems hard for us to want to cry out for mercy. It feels hard for us to want to, to, to receive mercy. It also uh, sometimes hard for us to want to dole out mercy. And when I talk about mercy, I can almost use this synonymously with the term forgiveness. That is one of the most tender-hearted, hit-a-nerve kind of emotions that we have, because in a lot of cases, our lack uh, or our offenses uh, are, are justified. And so to somehow give away and, and pardon uh, is to somehow make ourselves so vulnerable, it often feels like losing. And yet, it's also the thing that keeps us, I think, bound and in, in captivity. Uh, and so uh, I think we all value mercy. It's just the, uh, the, the idea of asking for it is, is problematic, much like feeling like, dang it, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm losing if, if I ask for it. I'm losing if I give it. So if you have your Bibles, maybe open them up, maybe you got an app, or maybe you brought them with you, uh, to Matthew chapter 18. Again, we've been just inching our way through all of these statements where Jesus is trying to paint a picture for what heaven on earth looks like, and he tells the story of a merciful master, but it's also known as the parable of an unworthy servant. And uh, it's a little bit of a longer passage, but I think it's really compelling, uh, and, it, and it's very easy to kind of flush it away as sort of a no-duh, or flush it away because somehow it sounds familiar, but I, I feel like it's often unapplied. And so Jesus is painting a picture for what heaven can be like, here and now, not there and then. And, and, and to experience heaven, it doesn't often feel like a goosebump. It doesn't feel like a warm fuzzy. There's this profound sort of effort that's involved with experiencing the presence of God. I like to think that the presence of God feels like a goosebump, that somehow I get a little warm fuzzy. And yet, to experience the presence of God can feel really penetrating in a discomforting sort of way. Now, Jesus says it this way because um, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And he says, up to 77 times. And, and he says, I tell you this, not seven times, but seven times seven. 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began to, the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife uh, and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And the servant fell on his knees before him and says, be patient with me, he begged, and I will bring it back everything. And then the servant's master took pity on him and he canceled the debt and he let him go. So in in ancient days, if you were sent to debtor's prison, 
there was this idea that parole was only granted when you could pay the debt, except if you're in debtor's prison, do you have any means to actually generate revenue? No. So what he's really painting a picture of is a life terminal sentence. And then he throws in, oh, and your wife and your kids. So it's not like mom could go get a side hustle and try and like back. The other thing about this parable that's worth noting is that when Jesus says that he's talking about this, this amount, this 10,000 talents, it was almost comedic in what he was saying. And the punchline is that everyone listening would have got, it would have been like saying, and he owed the U.S. national debt. And guess what, friends? He couldn't pay it back. And everyone would be like, well, no, duh. Of course he couldn't pay back that amount. It was an obscene amount. So Jesus is trying to make a point, and he's painting an extreme contrast just to understand Jesus' sense of humor in this. Uh, <clears throat> but when he, the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. He grabbed him, uh, and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and he begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. What did he just have him do? He gave him a life sentence that was going to be for it. When the other servants saw what had, had happened, they, went great, they were greatly distressed and they went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all your debts, uh, the, the debts of yours, because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have the mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master turned over turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. There is this picture that I think we have that I think actually paralyzes us, is that when we live in self-referential communities, we have a way of living in an echo chamber. We also have a way of looking around us and seeing and maybe justifying that there's people that are making more stupid choices than us. We find people and can identify and name people who are bigger jerks than us. They're more impatient, they're more greedy, whatever the case might be, we have maybe a conscious or a subconscious list of people that we think are probably a little bit worse than us. So we sort of feel justified with the offenses we carry and maybe our own level of disgust with others. Maybe I'm all just giving my own self-commentary and it's very revealing on me, so please pray for me and the grace needed. But I'm concerned when we read a passage like this, what we do is say, how could he be so arrogant to do such a thing? Except that if we really understand our need for God's forgiveness, our own depravity, our own shortcomings, we might be more inclined to be a little bit more gracious and even forgiving of those who have wronged us. And, and if you're like me, there is an account, a ledger that we keep, I was going to say in our minds, but really the ledger is in our hearts. And there's this temptation we have to not want to erase the account because that can feel like losing. That can feel like somehow it makes it okay. And so we hold on to that. 
And what we're doing is we're mitigating the fact that we have been forgiven. And oh, by the way, you're going to need to be forgiven again. And so what do we do with an almighty God and my own humanity when I'm going to stumble tomorrow and need to go back to God of the universe tomorrow to walk in God's good graces, to celebrate the fact that God's mercies are new every morning, but I want to hold people in contempt for how they disgusted me, disappointed me, or offended me, or whatever the case might be, however justifiable it is. Jesus paints in stark contrast, and he says, heaven on earth looks like the one who learns to be forgiven, but also learns to forgive. Because the debt that we owe, the offense that we are to God, versus what has happened to us, is equally uh, as great a contrast as Jesus might paint. And so uh, in this picture, you know, we, we have this idea of, of, of maybe God's great love that sort of gets minimized because we're so acutely aware of what someone's done to us, of what they said about us, or how they hurt us, or how they came after our kids. Hello, Mama Bear. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it gets, it gets sort of like, oh, oh I, I, I can't not remember that. I've kind of said in the past, whenever someone um, has been particularly kind to my children, I have a permanent indebtedness to them. And so there's people, whether they be coaches or whether they be older friends, who have just come alongside my kids and been especially nice to them. And I was just like, yeah, you could burn down my house and I'm still going to like you. You know, it's that kind of thank you. But if, if you've actually done something to my kids, I can't not remember that. Like, come on now. And so there is this vulnerability. And I'll just call it a temptation that I have to hold and bear grudges. Um, to, to take up offenses. And oh, by the way, the great bait of Satan of our time is our willingness to carry or take up offenses, particularly for another. You want to live with that? You might as well just carry suitcases around with all the emotional baggage that you're going to hold. And you can change jobs, you can change churches, you can change spouses, but guess what? Those hurts carry with you into that next context. Wounds don't transfer just because faces do. Henry Nouwen, um, who was an amazing, he was a priest turned professor, uh, but uh, he, he had this quote, and I, I have it up here for you, and he said, I, I read it a couple of times because I wanted to let it sink in, and this has a lot of application to what it's trying to be like to be a community of faith, because one of the things we fancy ourselves is an extended family of faith, which, by the way, we're going to disappoint each other. By the way, we're kind of going to rub each other wrong. There's going to be some friction. There's going to be some disappointment, but we get to be a testimony of who God is because we understand what it's like to receive his mercy and forgiveness. But listen to what Henry Nouwen said. He says, forgiveness is the name of love practice among poor, among people who love poorly. There are moments where I love well, and there are moments where I love poorly. I played both sides of that, unfortunately. 
Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all people love poorly, comma, at times. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour, increasingly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family, or what I would call the church. How's your home life? Is forgiveness spoken there? Um, I have a couple of things that I have started um, implementing when I meet with young couples. One of the things that I do with every young couple that I've ever met with for over 20 years, as I go into premarital counseling, I have the same starter conversation. And you've heard me share this in different times, but I start out with two basic questions, is how was conflict managed in your home? And everyone's got their model for conflict about how it was expressed. And, you know, sometimes they give me a confused look and I go, well, were you yellers? Were you throwers? Was it silent treatment? Uh, were you door slammers? Did people punch walls? You know, what, how was conflict and anger kind of expressed? And everyone goes, oh yeah, well, we were this. And, you know, and then I ask the follow-up question. And oh, by the way, my point in saying that is conflict is the most natural thing in all the world, and, uh, except that God never uh, agree, uh, intended for us to agree uh, on everything and see eye to eye. So the nature of conflict means there's a way to disagree and kind of stay in bounds and not go out of bounds. That's my point for every young budding marriage is hey, you're going to disagree, but there's a way to disagree and still, like, not get sideways, right? My follow-up question is this. How did you see reconciliation or restoration model? Like, after the big blow-up, how did they repair it? How did they restore it? And you, you talk about the most puzzled look ever, and it's like, what? Did, did you ever see your mom come back to your dad and go, I'm sorry, honey, I overreacted. Did you ever see your dad just kind of own it and say, I, sorry, I carried my stress into this and I took, what? I mean, like over 20 years of me sort of like canvassing this question and getting, and it's like blank stares. No, it was usually just swept under the rug and we just carried on as business as usual the next day. I mean, that's kind of the answer for over 20 years. And this is where I go with it. And this is what I would say to us is, one of the greatest legacies that you can live is the ability to reconcile with another. And if you want to create a home um, and a legacy within your kids, eventually you'll have them, is you should practice how to reconcile. And so it's a lot easier to do that before you have kids, uh, to just be able to learn how to own missteps, learn how to ask for forgiveness. And we've all been on the receiving end of an insincere apology. Well, I'm sorry you took that that way, but you're not sorry you said it. That's what, you're that's what you just said. What about actually saying, will you forgive me? And you, you kind of own it as, I need your help in this. I, I wronged you. And, and I tell you, if you want to build a, kind of a, a lasting legacy, that's the best gift you can give your kids is as a model. So it's a whole society with a model for conflict that's actually not that healthy and a whole society with no model for restoration or reconciliation. And oh, by the way, what is part of our Christian identity? You are ministers of reconciliation for those of you 
who are in Christ Jesus. That's what Christ has done for us on the cross, is reconciled us to our Father in heaven that we can now receive forgiveness. So who are we to hold others in contempt? I got to tell you one very personal story. Um, my first church was not a picnic. It was a rude introduction to the sausage factory. And I really liked the church, uh, and just like I like bratwurst, but I didn't, I, I got to see how it was made. And um, we were, uh, we, we chose this church before we were ever paid by this church, but then I was hired, uh, and they went through a transition, and it was pretty obvious, and, and, I, and I hate to l- let you see behind the curtain of church life, because I know all of your pictures of church has always been immaculate, but when you work at a church and you're a professional Christian, it can actually be really toxic. Uh, and so there was a pastor that had come in, and he had taken over, and... Um, he had uh, done some things and said some things that were just inaccurate um, because he was new. Uh, and I'll, I'll just leave it at, there, there was a lot of woundedness um, when we limped out of there. What I would put into category of spiritual abuse. Um, we, were, we were so hurt by him. Uh, and to the point where I'm like, and this was like back in 97, I said, Laurel, if, if we can't get away from this, I'm never going to pastor again. Like, I can't do this anymore. Um, and uh, it, if you've ever been in an abusive situation, you just know you, you can't breathe, right? Um, so fast forward a couple of years. Uh, it was the year 2000. We were at a, a, a pastor gathering in Florida. The church that I'd worked with in San, in, was in San Diego, and we were now living in Alabama, and so we went to this gathering, and oh my God, who would show up to this thing but that jerk? And I was still pissed at him. I, I mean, and, and at this time, uh, well, it, w- it would have been 1999, uh, we had had two miscarriages. And so there's always this fear, like when you have miscarriages, like are we ever going to be able to have kids? And it took a lot longer uh, than we had hoped or thought. And uh, so it was a really vulnerable place. But when we showed up to this thing, I was just being reminded of, um, like, all the emotions came back as if it was, like, yesterday. And, you know, it had been, like, two and a half years. And I'm like, I don't want to start parenting with this offense. I don't want to go further into marriage with this offense. I don't want to go further into ministry when I know people are going to keep disappointing me with this level of offense. And so after one of the sessions, and he was the speaker because everyone thought he was so great he had something to say, you know, <laughs> big fat jerk, uh, I felt like kind of voice from the Lord, the prompt of the Spirit, just trying, and, and it was, you know, it's, it, it did not feel safe. It, it felt way too vulnerable, but here's, here, and I remember Laurel just, and I was like, I think we're supposed to go. How do, you feel if, how do you feel if we let him come pray for us in this pregnancy? You and I are both anxious about this. Pregnancy has not been kind to us. He's the last person we wanted to touch us, let alone pray for us. There was so much hurt that was real. And so with just as much courage and humility as we can muster up, we didn't go to let him know the wrongs. He, he, was, he was kind of oblivious because 
Um, he has his own version of narcissism. And uh, we weren't going to air our grievances. It was more about our own hearts because there was a need for freedom for, for me, for us. Pastor Jim, um, it's, it, it is, hey, it's good to see you again. Oh, I didn't know you guys would be here. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're here. Um, and actually, Laurel's expecting. I don't, yeah, you can see her. Um, I would, um, we've had two miscarriages by now, and I just wonder if, if you would just be willing to pray over us. Oh, yes. And, you know, he sat us down and he prayed on us like he was still our pastor, like he loved us. And he just laid hands and he prayed this beautiful prayer. And, um, you know, that was nice. And we had a health, look at, it turned out, look at, his prayer worked. Uh, you know, uh, uh, one man's prayer, right? You know, I mean, but my point was this, I needed to, in faith, surrender that to God, to the man that I still, uh, I still have a hard time saying nice things about but I didn't want to carry the offense any longer. Um, I see him in the news, I see him online, uh, and I still kind of shake my head like, oh my gosh. Um, except that I don't have to carry with me that baggage any longer for how he hurt us so deeply. And, you know, 20 plus years later, I'm still pastoring and doing the thing that I felt like God Set, set apart for me to do. Uh, and it's only by his grace and the recognition that I, I have to steward forgiveness because there's been so much I've been forgiven. And the only way I can take communion, the only way I can like go back to God is knowing that this thing called forgiveness and mercy is, is not, I'm not supposed to be just a vessel where I just gobble it up and receive it. I'm supposed to be a vehicle where it just flows through. And, and um, I didn't even want to do that. So let me ask you as we kind of wrap up, did anyone, um, I grew up in, in a city where there was uh, kind of, uh, and I grew up playing soccer in the Sunset District in San Francisco, which has historically been this Italian, or excuse me, uh, Irish enclave. But throughout the city, there was always Catholic um, bells that would be ringing. And usually they would signify mass was starting. Uh, and I remember St. Cecilia's, it was always the five o'clock bell, and we'd be running just a block away, and you could just hear the, 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 the bells ringing. But sacrifices um, always played a key part in temple worship so that people could atone for their sin. And sacrifices were made in, in Jesus's time around nine and three. And the idea was at the time of sacrifice, they'd bring out the big rocola, you know, shofar, the big ram's horn, uh, if you're a cough drop uh, fan, uh, uh, and they'd be like, and they'd blow this horn, not because mass was starting, but because it was a reminder of what to do with your sin and, and what to do with God's mercy. And so the people around the city would have heard the sound and were reminded of God's promise to forgive. And so maybe I was thinking, maybe this practice of ringing bells, not just for the start of a service, began, it, it was, it, it's not just to come to church, but it's an offering, a reminder to let people know anything, anything that might separate us from God's mercy. I thought that was such a beautiful picture. If, if you grew up listening to church bells ring, and I thought, maybe instead of the start of service, like I'm late, I need to get there, it's just a reminder of, oh my God, I, I have so much.
to be grateful for. I have so much gratitude in my heart for what Christ has done for me. And so the question I have is what reminds you or nudges you to offer forgiveness? Because we carry around unforgiveness. We carry around contempt. So my question is, is what, do you, what reminds you of your need to offer it? I, I usually just try and avoid the person and carry the offense. And then it makes it sort of like high-functioning alcoholism. I mean, you know, it's like I'm just carrying this thing that I'm addicted to, not forgiving. And then the second question is, what sets you free and allows you to actually receive forgiveness? Because we're all in that place. Oh, I'm not perfect. I know I need God's forgiveness. I know. So if you know you need it, why wouldn't you also want to participate in it? Because that's how Christ's forgiveness works for us. It's a really powerful picture. See, the church bells are ringing, um, reminding you of where to come home, where forgiveness reigns. So let me just do this. Uh, as we close tonight, I want to pray a prayer of examination straight out of the scripture. This is a prayer written by the psalmist David, uh, where he is in this sort of wrestling match where he just begins to cry out. And I call it a prayer of examination because it's a chance for us to kind of do inventory of our own heart, but it's a chance to participate with what I would call the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You go, well, what's that like? Well, I would just say when faces come to mind, when prompts come to your say, or emotion rises, I would say that the Holy Spirit might be percolating something. Don't rationalize it. Don't dismiss it. Just acknowledge it and name it. So if an instance, if a conversation, if a name, if a face comes to mind, I would just say, let's address it so that we can walk as people who are free indeed so that we can also receive Christ's healing touch in our life of forgiveness. So as we think about this passage, do you believe first and foremost that God is a merciful master? I wanna say, yeah, I do. But I also don't wanna hold other people and put them in debtor's prison because they've done some little grievous thing to me. Are there certain people that you find particularly hard to love? Is there something for which you blame God? What makes God's love hard to receive? Hard to believe. Now let's examine as we pray. Will you pray this with me? You searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me too lofty for me to attain. Imagine God knows your intimate being. God knows your heart. So let's just ask, what is in our heart except our motives, our attitudes, our desires, our ill will, our contempt? And God is the one 
who sees and knows all of it. And he's inviting us out of the shadows and into the light to lay our hearts bare before him for which he already knows. And maybe we could just say that the one thing um, that, that withholds God's forgiveness in our own life is confession. Naming it. Owning it. So we would pray this. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. I'm going to just invite you to just bow your heads and think about that. What are you anxious about? How might your trust in God be compromised? The prayer is to search my heart, right? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just refresh our minds and our hearts. Maybe you would just string together um, some of the things that we are um, carrying that you called us to let go of. Search us. And then you say, see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in a way that's everlasting. And so we're just saying eternity has already begun. We can experience heaven now. And so I want us to be able to experience a little bit of heaven on earth, starting with forgiveness. Maybe confess an offense and the regret that comes to mind. Maybe invite God to just be light. The church bells are ringing, reminding you to come home where forgiveness is free. It frees us. God, we just pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. That you would comfort us. That you would strengthen us. Pray that you would help us name it. Name what holds us back. Name the offense. Name the hurt. Lord, we want to walk in freedom. We thank you that you are a God that we can come clean with. We thank you that when we name our inadequacies, it's not because the jury's still out, it's because you're entirely accepting of us and wanting to embrace us as free. Let's just think about that as we worship and pray. Let's just let that kind of sit with us as we go to the Lord.